0: I want to turn you back to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to be making reference particularly to one text here. Uh, I I have to preface the message this morning by saying that I probably won't get this finished. And I, I, I may carry it over even in tonight because I'm going to be making reference to other texts of Scripture as well. This is known as the Reformation Sunday. The closest Sunday to the 31st of October has been given that name because of the actions, of course, of Martin Luther as he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Church door on the 31st of October, 1517. And the closest Sunday thereby and since has been known as Reformation Sunday. Now that is an embarrassment to many ministers today. But without it, we wouldn't have our pulpits. That's how important it is. And so we want to... Uh, look at this uh, this morning uh, in the will of God. So let's just unite our heart together. Short word of prayer as we come to uh, the preaching of, of God's word. Father in heaven, we do thank Thee again for Thy presence. We thank Thee, Lord, for Thy word. Uh, the scriptures of truth that we've been looking at even in the Bible class. And, O oh God, we pray that thou would give us, Lord, understanding. Give us help this morning even in in looking at this great subject. We thank the Lord for the Protestant Reformation. We thank the Lord for those whose eyes were opened to the glorious light of the gospel of saving grace and bringing us back even to the truths of God's word. And Lord, we do remember uh, even many people today whose eyes are still blinded. We think of the nation of Israel. Thou hast exhorted us in Thy word to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for that land today in turmoil. And, O God, especially those of Thy children in parts of Israel, even in Gaza, we pray, O God, that Thou would graciously draw near and overrule. And, Lord, that Thy name would be honored and glorified And these days that, Lord, people in their hopeless state even might turn to the great Savior and great God of a lost mankind. Father, be with us, we pray. Help us, Lord, as we turn now to thy word. Fill us with thy spirit and with power. Give us utterance in the Holy Ghost. We pray these things in our Savior's precious name. Amen. It was at an evangelical conference in 1966 that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was to part company with other evangelical leaders over ecumenism. The very next year, he spoke out boldly about the magnitude of the problem as he saw it to his own congregation. I quote, I remind you that the Protestant reformers were not just bigoted zealots or fools. Their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit, Luther, Calvin, Knox, all of them. They saw the horrible monstrosity depicted in the Bible and the warning against it. At the risk of even losing their lives, they stood up and protested. They confronted Rome. The Roman Catholic Church is a counterfeit, a sham. It represents prostitution of the worst and most diabolical kind. It is indeed a form of the Antichrist. It is to be rejected and denounced. And there's only one thing that can counter it. And that is a biblical doctrinal Christianity. That's in 1967. C.H. Spurgeon, going back a little bit further, great Baptist preacher of London, was every bit as bold. When he spoke in the 19th century, he too recognized the true nature of Romanism when he stated that Popery could be called by the name of Antichrist because it wounds Christ because it robs Christ of His glory, because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of His atonement and lifts a piece of bread in the place of His Savior and a few drops of water in place of the Holy Ghost and puts a fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. If we pray against it because it is against Him, we shall love the persons though we hate their errors. We shall love their souls though we loathe and detest their dogmas and so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened because we turn our faces toward Christ when we pray. I think that sums it up well too. I asked the question this morning were these men wrong in their assessment of Rome? I asked the question were the reformers Wrong. To look at so-called Protestant church leaders of our province just a month ago at the end of September as they met for an ecumenical prayer service in Rome the leader of the Presbyterian Church of Moderator, the president of the Methodist Church, and the leader of the Church of Ireland, along with the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Armagh, you might conclude, yes, they were wrong. And I might add this, that the silence of evangelical reform ministers in those denominations about such an event is deafening. And it just adds to the confusion. Do they just accept Roman Catholicism as part of the broader Christian church? They have deviated on certain points, but they hold enough truth to be justifiably called the Christian church. Is that how to look upon them? There's no issue today with those leaders meeting with the Archbishop of Armagh. There's no issue that they go to Rome. In fact, we're antiquated because we might even raise the issue to a a particular people. The unscriptural doctrines of Rome are many. Many. The sacrifice of the Mass, including what she calls transubstantiation, the changing of the blood, of the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Reenacting Calvary every time that they have a Mass. That's heresy. Baptismal regeneration, priestly confession and absolution of sins, purgatory and prayers for the dead, and the unscriptural and unfounded exaltation of Mary as the Mother of God, and through whom uh, their people come to Christ. And by such there is a dishonouring of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll just give you a, a rough summary of the heresies within her. Rome denies the sufficiency of Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. She denies the utter depravity of man and helplessness to do anything for their salvation. She denies the sufficiency of Christ on His death to atone for sin and to pardon the sinner. She denies the sinner direct access to the Savior. Rome does not teach that a person can have assurance of salvation in this life. That they have immediate entrance into the presence of the Savior at death. She denies that Christ is the only head of the church. The only mediator. And she denies the Holy Spirit as the vicar of Christ on the earth. But one of the most vital truths that has to be theist. And which was answered at the Protestant Reformation. When Luther nailed those theses. And Theses, by the way, men and women, is just another, is an old name for arguments. Ninety-five arguments he nailed on the Wittenberg church door, 1517. And the great truth that was to divide Reformed religion from Catholicism is how can a man be justified before God? That's a pivotal truth. How can a man be justified before God? And that's what the apostle is found to be speaking about here, at least at part, in this passage of Romans chapter 3. I want us to uh, look at this. I want you to consider, first of all, a definition of justification. Before we get into the body of our text, and I might draw your attention to that text, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Before we get into that, we must understand what exactly is in mind when we speak about being justified. There's a term there and there's a term that we need therefore to define. Background Cairns in his Dictionary of Words has defined it as the establishment of a sinner in a righteous standing before God. Maybe we could do no better than to refresh ourselves in how the shorter catechism puts it in answer to the question, what is justification? It is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I might say to the boys and girls, maybe the catechisms are cumbersome at times, maybe some of them are very difficult, but you learn them. Because in learning the catechism, you have a good foundational basis of all the doctrines, all the truths that are found in God's Word, encapsulated in those answers. And so we can deduct from that answer that it has to do with two things. The pardon of sins and the imputed righteousness led to our account. But of course, men and women, that's not how the church of Rome defines it. Nor did she at the time of the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, she had to try and counteract what had happened. And so there was a drawing up of her dogmas to refute the claims of the Scriptures and of the Reformers. And those dogmas are still what she holds on to. And those dogmas at that time were collated and they were an answer to the rediscovery of the truth of God's word and they were found at what is called the Council of Trent. You come across that name, then you know what you're looking at. That's Rome's answer to the Reformation. And the council states as a definition of justification, I quote it is, a transition from the state in which a person is born as a child of the first Adam to the state of grace and of adoption as the children of God through the agency of the second Adam, Jesus Christ our Savior. And that sounds very plausible. But how is this transi- transition brought about? It's brought about by Baptism. Their catechism states, I quote, baptism is the gateway to life in the Spirit and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin, reborn as the sons of God. We become members of Christ. That's that's how they define it. That's in black and white. Suffice to say, that's not the teaching of the Word of God. That's not the teaching of the Scriptures. Let me prove that to you. If justification was by baptism, why do I read and you read in John chapter 4 verse 2? Verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, verse 2, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. The Lord didn't baptize anyone. Yet Rome teaches justification is by baptism. Why did the Savior say to the repentant thief on the cross who had no opportunity to be baptized, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. If justification was by baptism, why did Paul state as he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 1.17 that Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel? I think those are proofs to show each one of us that justification is not by baptism. You see, even in this passage that the Apostle deals with the subject negatively, he shows what cannot justify a man. Look at the words of verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is a knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. This is not something that can be done by the sinner and it's certainly not by any works of righteousness that we may seek to do. You consider that this justification is a declaration on the part of God. To justify is to declare to be in a right state. brings us really into the courtroom. It's your judicial term it is to show to be righteous and that is what God does it's a legal act on the part of God whereby he declares that penitent sinner to be right to be right state before him and to be righteous in his sight God makes that declaration now don't confuse it it doesn't make a change in the heart and that is because it is misunderstood by some believers because they're conscious of their sin. They may be brought to the place where there's doubts and they conclude, I might not be justified. But justification doesn't change the heart. It's a declaration about us that God makes. And what a declaration that it is, as it can be noted from the previous verse in verse 23. For all have sinned. There's the problem in a moment, the problem of our past. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. We were born in sin. For in Adam, we all fell in his transgression. He partook of that forbidden fruit and disobedience to God's command. And because he was our representative, we all fell in Adam, in our first man. And it would have been no different had we have been there ourselves. We still would have done the same thing. But not only have we original sin, but the effects of that fall are still being felt because that verse states, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is, in the present tense, our sinful state is still affecting us to this day. We come short of the glory of God and therefore we cannot justify ourselves before God. We cannot declare ourselves to be in a right state or a righteous state. That is what God alone can do. And what God declares to the sinner who repents. You see, we read a wee verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. It is God that justifieth. You've read that many a time, haven't you? It is God that justifieth. You see that there is a definite time when this declaration takes place. Our text, verse 24 says, Being justified. Again, in a tense with a definite time is noted. When is that time? Look at the words of verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is, by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. There's the time. It's the time. It's the moment when that soul believes, that soul born in Adam's race, that soul born in sin, it is that time when that soul believes in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. It's then that God makes this declaration. That's why the Catechism says it's an act of God's free grace. It's not repeated, but it's a once and for all act and declaration of his grace. How different to what the Church of Rome teaches and what she practices. You think of the poor Romanists today having gone through baptism as then to add to that work, all their rituals, all their good works, and at the end of it all, still has no assurance that they will be declared right before God. And if you don't believe me, you go and talk to them. They have no peace with God. They have no assurance that they'll ever be in heaven. Yet they've been through the waters of baptism and they've done their good works and all of the rest of it. Dear child of God, thank God for the Reformation today that delivered us from the darkness and from the confusion of such a system and which give us back the clear teachings of the Scriptures and especially the meaning of what it is to be justified. And before I go any further, I simply ask you this morning, what's your standing before God? Are you in a right standing with him today? Are you in that justified, righteous standing before the Lord? Has there been that time in your life when God has justified you? Are you still in your sin? Here I say is a pivotal truth that defines truth from error and defines really what a true church is from what is not. How can a man be justified before God? Let me go on and say there's the manner of justification. Not only the meaning, but the manner. How the Church of Rome teaches that a soul can be pardoned was highlighted by the selling of the indulgences in Luther's day. A man by the name of John Tetzel. He went about from town and city. They wanted to raise funds for the Basilica in Rome and all of that. And so he went around the various cities in Europe telling the people that they could have their sins pardoned and they could buy these sealed letters. Uh, The reformers called them sin dockets. And he said, and I quote, there's no sin so great that an indulgence cannot remit. Only pay well and all will be forgiven. Pope brought out something similar just a few years back. They haven't changed one iota. He even sold them for their ready deceased. Repentance is not even necessary. Come by, rich sinner, empty your gold. The very instant the money rattles the bottom of the chest, the soul escapes from purgatory. And that's what was spread right throughout those towns and villages and cities. You listen to what Bishop J.C. Ryle said about those days, Protestant Bishop of Liverpool. He said, The plain truth is that it was a church without a Bible and that a church and such a church is as useless as a lighthouse without a light, a candlestick without a candle or a steam engine without fire. He went on to state, as to the clergy, as a general rule, their religion was the meanest form and scarcely deserved to be called Christianity at all. As to the laity, the bulk of them, except in the hour of trial, sickness and death, had no religion at all. A church without a light. that we have so-called Protestant leaders happily meeting with them, worshipping alongside them, going to Rome. Council of Trent, in answer to the doctrines of grace that were rediscovered at the Reformation, was to state that to be justified means two things. Firstly, there was an infusion of grace by baptism into the sinner, and that gave them the ability then to obey all the rituals, and then there was the forgiveness of sins. If you pay close attention to what I've just read there, you'll notice the order. And the order shows and signifies where the greatest importance is placed, i.e. it's placed on baptism. Baptism is considered greater than receiving forgiveness of sins. What the church terms as an infusion of grace is the soul of the child which was spiritually dead becomes alive. It's reborn and brought into a state of grace, and that is what they term as justification, the manner in which it comes about. They believe that a person can merit for themselves or even for others the grace that's needed for justification and for sanctification. However, it doesn't deliver the child from inclination to sin, nor does it guarantee that the child will attain eternal life as an adult. Baptism is only the first step in that plan of their salvation. There's a lot more money that is to change hands in the years that lie before that child and even after death. And even then, they're not assured of eternal life. That's why I believe Spurgeon had a very good quote there We hate their system, we love their souls. They're in ignorance as to how they can know forgiveness of sins and assurance of eternal life. You understand now why so much emphasis is placed upon the baptism of a child? Is any threat of a child at death, child dying at, after birth, they'll call for the priest before they call for the doctor? The child has to be Baptized. They believe in baptismal regeneration by the water of the font, by the words of that priest that he says over a child. And sadly, the consequences of such erroneous teaching, which has no scriptural foundation to it whatsoever, means that the ordinary Roman Catholic goes through life confidently thinking that they are right before God, and they are at least on that road that leads to heaven. They believe that they have been justified by the waters of baptism, which is foreign to my text and it is foreign to the scriptures in general. But yet their conscience doesn't speak the same message. For as I've said to you, they have no peace with God. No peace with regard to their eternal destination. And you can understand, men and women, how Luther, enlightened by the glorious light and truth of the gospel, was so enraged against the selling of those indulgences and why, by God's grace, he exposed its practice by those 95 theses that he he wrote and he nailed to that Wittenberg church door. Luther was to make it plain, there needed to be repentance. Repentance on the part of the sinner to know what it was to have their sins forgiven. Can I read to you some, just two of those theses? Number 32 says this. Those who believe that through letters of pardon they are made sure of their own salvation will be eternally damned along with their teachers. Doesn't miss the mark. He's a former monk. But he's come across the words powerfully by God, the Holy Spirit in Romans one, that just shall live by faith. Number seventy six, he says this: We affirm that people pardons cannot take away even the least daily sins as regards the guilt. Dear loved one, while we have dealt with the false view on the manner of justification. I want us to consider, and I, I'm not going to get this through, but I want us just to start at least to consider the Reformed and the Scriptural view. The Bible teaches that it's God that justifies. It's a divine act. It's not something that a man can do or say, a form of words which will bring it about. And we've already noted that from the words of verse 20, that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. It's not by works. But instead, give attention to the words of my text. And it shows the scriptural manner of justification. Being justified freely by His grace. It's something that is a gift of God. Does not the word freely indicate that in the most clearest of terms? Being justified freely. And it's something interesting to consider where other verses use that same term. I want you to turn over just to Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 16. Just across the page you'll see it here. It says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so was the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses on justification. He's drawing the contrast, the comparison, if you like, between Adam's sin and what Christ did. The first Adam, the last Adam. Luke verse 18, Therefore as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. There's Adam. We're condemned because of Adam's sin. Even so, by the righteousness of one, here's Christ, here's the last Adam. Even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. As by one sin Adam fell and we were condemned in him. So the free gift of God in sanctifying his people covered many offenses. Being justified freely. Let me just finish this morning with giving you another one. Matthew chapter 10. With this, we'll, we'll conclude. Look at the words of verse 8. The Savior here is sending out his disciples. You have them named at the opening part of the chapter. Sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, As you go, verse 7, preach. It didn't say, As you go, baptize. He said, Preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. The Lord sent out his disciples. They had the power to do those great wonders and miracles as you read about in that verse. But notice that the instruction from the Lord was that they had to freely, as they had freely received this gift, the power to do these things. And so they were to freely give. In other words, as they went forth, they were able to heal the sick. They were able to cause the lepers to be healed. They were to do it freely. Without charge. And that's the word that Paul uses in our text. Being justified freely. I tell you, that's a far cry from the many modern day healers today. They charge plenty. And they ask for plenty. But the Lord said, as you have freely received, freely give. And men and women, you're saved today. God has freely justified you. It's not by works that you or I have done. It's by his grace. Freely. Without charge. You know why? Because the work and the price has already been done at Calvary. For that's where the last Adam went And he laid down his life as our substitute. And on the cross he bore our sin and he paid the penalty that we deserve. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. That price was not the currency of silver or gold. It was this precious blood being justified freely by his grace. All men and women, the matchless grace of God Do you know what it is to be justified today? Do you know what it is God declaring you to be righteous and as just in His sight? Just as if you had never sinned. That's justification. And it's all of God. I pray that the Lord might bless His word to our hearts this morning. If you're not saved, that you can come even now. You can know what it is. To be justified and in that right standing with the Lord. I would ask you if you'd come back tonight and we'll finish it off. We'll give you, and we'll go to other texts of Scripture bringing out the very same truth of justification. That great truth that was rediscovered at the Protestant Reformation. Number 54, let's stand to sing in closing. Number 54, please, great God of wonders, all thy ways are worthy of thyself, divine, but the fair glories of thy grace beyond thine other wonders shine. Page 197. Let's stand as we sing at this hymn, number 54. Mm-hmm. Lord, we thank thee for thy word, being justified freely by thy grace. <laughs> thank the Lord, as we've been singing, thou art pardoning God. Thank the Lord, thy grace is so rich and so free. And Lord, we bless thee for each one and the congregation who can identify with these words and who have been justified by thy grace. And Lord, freely, undeservingly, unworthy as we were, yet, Lord, and Our sinful state, thou dost reach thine, thou dost lifted us up, thou dost set our feet on the rock Christ Jesus. Thou dost declared us just. O God, we thank thee for the great truth rediscovered by the reformers. Help us, Lord, to cherish it. Help us, Lord, to tell others about it. Speak to those yet unsaved in the congregation they're yet in their sin. Lord, they had know nothing of what it is to be justified. And we pray Lord. I would speak on when the preacher's voice is silent. Bless us this afternoon. Bless us tonight, Lord. Oh, bring us back again. That we might, Lord, enjoy this great truth. And, and Lord, take it in. And oh God, do our hearts and our souls good. Hear this, our prayer. We ask it in our Savior's precious name. Amen.